Okay, all set. All right, if you have a Bible, please open it to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 2 and 3 today. We're, we're taking a break from our First Corinthians series to go through the Ten Commandments. Yay! Um, now, for some of us, and this might be a curious thing. Why are, we, uh, why are we spending so much time on God's law? You know, we kind of have this idea in our culture that the fewer rules we have, the more freedom we have. But I, I actually want to challenge that. That law is not opposite to grace, but law is actually part of God's freeing and liberating grace. If you don't believe me, please just listen. One time, uh, Sharon and I got a job as, uh, as group home parents at a group home for at-risk youth. And the guy who ran the place, just everything about him said chaos, like no one's in charge here, right? Like when I was sitting down with him for my orientation, he was kind of like scattered, just going through papers, typing this and that, asking questions rapid fire, not listening to the answers. He's like, oh, it's great to meet you. Where are you say you're from? I'm like, Long Island. He's like, it's great. We're going to have a Tennessee native working with us. I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> this doesn't look good. And, you know, this was a high responsibility job. A lot, of these, a lot of these boys we were taking care of were coming from very tough situations. And so, you know, you'd assume that you'd get training, orientation, which consisted of Sharon and I showing up on our first day, them handing us the keys to the van in the house and saying, do a good job. Great. Okay, that's simple. Just keep it simple. Do a good job. Later that weekend, we came home from swimming, and I came in with some of the boys to the kitchen where Sharon was holding the wrist of one of our most difficult boys, and she was eight months pregnant at the time, and he was holding a knife to her. And she was saying, put the knife down. Do a good job. Simple as that. Just do a good job. What do you do? How do you do a good job there? How do you do a good job when you're called to the principal's office for them again? Or they have drugs on them. Or they have an emotional breakdown because their parents are incarcerated. Not so simple, is it? Having no guidelines, having no structure and no rules is not a freeing blessing any more than if we were to say, hey guys, we're going to be so free when we drive, we're going to take away all traffic laws. Is that freeing? For maybe three seconds. Then we'd just be a huge, it'd be Mad Max out there. It'd, it'd be, you know, we would be very, very bound very, very fast. And so the law of God is not meant to be this strict burden that kills our joy but it's meant to be, you know, guidelines for us to walk in paths of flourishing, okay? Now, let me tell you what the Ten Commandments are not. The Ten Commandments are not ten things you do to prove that you deserve heaven. That's not what it is. Jesus on the cross died for us and rose again. That's, and believing that is what saves us, period, end of story. It's not what the Ten Commandments are. They are also not ten things that you do to increase God's love and favor for you. Again, God loves you because you're his child and you're made in his image. You cannot increase that. They are also not a museum piece that is safely ignored. You know what Jesus said about this? He said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. In fact, anyone who teaches someone not to obey even the least commandment will be called least in the kingdom. 
Now, we can unpack what that means, but at least it's important to Jesus, isn't it? And therefore, it should be important to us. I'll tell you what the, the Ten Commandments are. They're God's loving, fatherly instruction for how to walk, in to live a life of love, to do a good job as a human being, right? To, to put some meat on the... You see all these signs around, be a good person. How? This is how. This is God's guidance. So read with me the, the uh, Exodus 20, 2 and 3, and then we'll pray. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. God, through your word, I, I pray that you would form us as your people, that you would transform us, and that we would heed your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. When you, um, when you feel that there's no one looking out for you, you learn certain patterns of life. I was uh, close to a family that adopted a little girl at, at four years old. And this little girl did not have anyone looking out for her before they adopted her. And so she learned patterns of like self-reliance that she found it difficult to unlearn. So even though she was in this great family, she was still doing things like stowing bags of food around the house, right? Does that say, I, I have no one taking care of me or what? And it was a long time before she learned, hey, I can actually trust my parents. They're here. They're caring for me now. In the, in the same way, each and every one of us, we are born into an alienated relationship with God. Each and every one of us, no one has to tell us, but we function as if there is no God looking out for us. How does that look in a person's life? Well, it looks like anxiety over someone who has missed, missed very few meals in their life, worried about where their next meal's coming from. That's what it looks like. Because there's a belief, there's no one looking out for me but me. It's thinking of the future and getting a knot in your chest because you're nervous. What's going to happen in the future? Because you believe the future's in your hands, not God's, that there's no God who holds your future. Right? We sound just like that little girl learning these patterns of self-reliance. Or it can look like no one thinks I matter in the world, and therefore, through my achievement of degrees, of success, of whatever reputation, I'm going to prove to the universe I matter, as if there was no God, the Father who delighted in you. These are the patterns of those of us who function as spiritual orphans. This is nothing new. And, and it, it's interesting that when God has his, he delivers his people out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, and then they meet God, he first tells them who he is, and he wants to set them on new patterns. You see, they had grown up without knowing God for generations in slavery. And so now, what's the first thing God tells them in, in verse 2? And this is a repeat of the first thing he says when he meets them at Mount Sinai, where they are right now. 
He says, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the scene in the movie where God marries his people. God makes his people his. We no longer are spiritual orphans. But you know what? Those old patterns die hard. We, we, we tend to live, and they tended to live, as those who have to take care of themselves. And so it's no accident that the first commandment establishes and protects that central relationship of God and his people. God doesn't just deliver his people out of Egypt, right? And he doesn't just deliver us out of sin and death. He also makes us his. And what is to be our response? It's, it's that we would have no other gods. Now, I, wanna, I want you guys to think in a new way about the Ten Commandments. Um, those of you, we did this ser uh, series one, once before, so you might remember the dartboard. Could I get the dartboard? Okay. So, I don't play darts. I think all of us have thrown a dart at a dartboard at some point in our lives, right? And unless some of us have really misspent our youth, we're all happy just to hit the board, okay? <laughs> and, but if we hit the wall, we're like, oh, I missed. So board, wall, that's our general two targets. But if we hit the bullseye, we're like, yes, buy me a drink, you know? Um, and so think of the, the way that the Ten Commandments are phrased. Have no other gods. Don't break the Sabbath. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. That's telling you where the wall is. That's telling you what it is to break love. Okay? So there's breaking that's missing totally. Then there's keeping, which is implied by, you know, where the wall is. And then there's the bullseye, which is love. The heart of God's law is love. That's to keep it perfectly. All right? So break, keep, Bullseye, love. And that's how we're going to go through each commandment. So if we look at the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. Literalistically from the Hebrew, there will be no other gods. What does that mean and how do we keep it? Well, first of all, we have to think of what it means to break it. It's to have another god and therefore have no other god. And that, first of all, if you put yourself in the shoes of the ancient Israelites... The, the fact that there was one God for them uh, was news, okay? Like, you grew up in Egyptian paganism. There was a God for everything. There was like a hippo God and stuff. There was really sacred hippos, right? Sac I believe they had sacred hippos. Um, they had a sun God. They had a river God. They had a, a, a fertility God. There was gods of all sorts. And so the first part of having another God and, or not having another God is intellectually committing that there is only one true God, okay? And then, this is a little more complicated, but another way that we can break the first commandment is even if we believe there's one God, it's to serve with our lives another God. Jesus, in addressing some ancient Jews, says you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, these were ancient Jews. They were not offering offerings at the deity Mammon's altar. But Mammon was a wealth god, a money god. And he was saying, your real god is money. You actually worship Mammon because your life is more committed to making money than it is to the service of God. That makes sense? So that's another way to break the first commandment, is that even if you say, yes, there's one god, when you look at how you 
actually live your life, it's devoted to something else. For example, there is a song that came out a couple of years ago that is on, like we, we pay royalties to a, a song, worship song database. It's like the official database. And I found this song on there. I heard about it in the news and it, I looked up the lyrics. It's called Make America Great Again. Do you want to hear it? I'm not going to sing it, but here's the, here's the chorus. Here's the tagline. Make America great again. Make America great again. Lift the torch of freedom all across the land. Step into the future, joining hand in hand, and make America great again. Yes, make America great again. Okay, and the verses go on much like that. Now, if you want to sing that at a Trump rally, I've got no problem with you. But if you're going to sing it in a service dedicated to the Lord, we got big problems. That is having another God. You, is there, like, they don't mention Jesus in there. I'm not sure that would make it better. But you see, even though they're committed to this idea, yes, there is one God who's actually being served there. So, to keep the first commandment, right, to get off the wall, is to believe there is only one God. So, we, we, to, to say, you know, any God you want to believe in is great. I understand why people say that and, you know, love everybody, but that would be a violation of the first commandment. More probably relevant to us is examining our lives to say, well, who am I actually serving? And if we're honest, when we look at what our life is dedicated to, where we spend our attention, our time, our effort, our money, I've got to say that there, there are many times in my life where I am guilty of serving another God. Okay? Like, because the, the way it works, like, the reason people served these ancient gods was not because they loved the god. The, the god did something for you. You wanted babies, you had to worship a fertility god. You wanted corn, you had to worship a, a usually also a fertility god. You wanted your ships to come in and not get wrecked in storms. You got to make Poseidon happy, right? So on and so forth. Every culture worked this way. We still do this. We just cut out the middleman. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't worship mammon, we worship money. We, we don't worship uh, the god of career success. We just worship the success. And so, when we look at our lives, how we, we're, what we're actually serving, we may say, yeah, you know what? There are times in my life where my, I am, I'm hitting the wall. I'm not making it on the dartboard. I'm breaking the first commandment. Now, again, does this mean we're all going to hell? No, Jesus died for our sins, folks. Okay? I, I know that there's some people getting tense. <laughs> well, you're saved. This is not how we're saved. But if we want to live a life of love, if we want to do a good job of being human, th this, is, this is step one, is to have no other gods. So what is getting on the board? What is, what is hitting it look like? Well, it's to remain committed to God. To remain committed to God when we struggle to remain committed to God, and also when it costs something. Okay, so what does it look like to love and trust God when it's difficult and when it costs something? Well, maybe there's no better example of this than, than the Bible story of Job. Now, some of you may not know Job, but Job was a, 
successful dude, right? He had land, he had property, he had animals, he had a bunch of kids, and he loses it all in tragic, dramatic fashion. All of his kids dead, all of his wealth gone, all of his property destroyed, and to boot, he gets like these really painful boils. And his wife comes to him, and she says, Job, what are you doing? Why are you still committed to God? Curse God and die. Don't you see this hasn't worked out for you? Everyone's dead. All your stuff is gone. You're covered in boils. Give up. And what does Job say to her? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is remaining committed. That is to keep the first commandment. And is even when it does not seem beneficial, even when it's really, really difficult, he remains committed to God. What does that look like for us? Every single one of us is going to struggle to remain committed to God. It may be an intellectual thing. You may have read the latest attack on, on the Christian faith from Bart Ehrman or Daniel Dennett or, or what have you, and you're struggling. It may be that your life has fallen apart in dramatic fashion. And you're sitting there saying, I thought God was for me. I thought God would care for me. Like, what's up here? It's to remain committed through those times that you're struggling and doubting. And doubting is normal, especially for a culture whose system of knowledge is based on doubt. We could talk about that sometime. You're all trained to doubt everything. And so, lo and behold, we doubt. It's to remain committed through doubt. And also to remain committed when it costs. Look, if, if, we're, if we're walking with Jesus in a serious way, sooner or later, someone's not going to like it. You know, someone on the right is going to ding you for your stance on justice. Someone on the left is going to ding you for your stance on whatever. You know, there is an increasing cost. You might get called a name, especially if you are foraying into online chat rooms. Are chat rooms still a thing? No, whatever, threads, what, what's the word? Onto online Twitter. <laughs> as, opposed, as opposed to analog Twitter. Right? Like, like you're going to take heat, you're going to take flack for your commitment to God. I, I, I seem to remember someone in the Bible, oh yeah, Jesus, also got it from every side. No one approved of Jesus. That comes with being a follower of Jesus. And guess what, guys? Like, throughout human history, our brothers and sisters in the faith have paid off in times with being completely excluded from the economy. There have been many times in, in world history where, where being committed to following God meant that you couldn't have a job. You couldn't trade in the marketplace. Many times in human history, it meant being excluded from holding office. Many places in the world, that is the case right now. And other times it means paying with time in prison and torture and death. To keep the first commandment is to remain committed even through those difficulties, either, either through struggles of belief or when it gets, us, gets to costing us something. So that is the wall, that is the board, and what does the bullseye look like? 
What is it, if, if, we, if we don't say what it means to break the first commandment, to have another God, what does it mean to be perfectly keeping it? Well, it means to love God as he deserves. That is with our whole being. When, when someone asked Jesus, Jesus, what is, the, what is the greatest commandment? He quoted the, uh, probably the best known text to the ancient Israelites, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. And then he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Now, those aren't three words for different parts of you. That's three words for the center of your being. It's to be totally committed and devoted from the center of your being. That's to love God as he deserves. You're not going to do that. <laughs> We're not getting there, guys. Not in any permanent sort of way. I think that we're so self-centered that we're really incapable of loving anyone like that. I think we get glimpses at times. There, there was one glimpse I had of this. Because you, you know when you're actually loving? When you're at your most loving is when you're not conscious that you're loving. You're not thinking about yourself at all. You're thinking about the other person. You're totally engrossed, absorbed in them. That's what real love looks like. Not when you're sitting there saying, I am smashing this loving someone else thing. <laughs> so when, when Maggie, my, my firstborn, was born, like I, it was such an overwhelming experience. First of all, my wife spent 35 hours in rock star labor, um, and it got complicated. So yay, Sharon! Um, <laughs> and then when that little baby came out and I got to hold her, Right? She, the umbilical cord was still hanging there. She was covered in goop. She was purple. She was wrinkled. She had their, her hands doing this thing. She couldn't control them. And her face was smashed and her head was misshapen. And I said, looks aren't everything. But I really, like, I was overwhelmed. Like, I, I, it, was the, it was one of the few times in my life I, I wasn't thinking about myself at all. I was completely absorbed in this beautiful little miracle that I was holding in my hands. I, th I think we only get glimpses of that. A few times in our life, we, we get to feel what it is to love with all of our being. But you know what? What's really interesting is this, this love that's not self-interested. Like, I didn't love Maggie because because she didn't love me. She, she was like, what's going on? It's bright in here. You know? <laughs> like, she wasn't, the, she wasn't giving me anything. She wasn't doing anything for me. I loved her for her own sake. Like, that is how God has loved us in Christ, isn't it? What do we do for God besides reject him, run away, you know? <laughs> and what does God do for us? He becomes a man and goes to a cross for us. That's, that's keeping that's loving with your whole being. And Jesus also is the only one who ever truly loved God as God deserves, right? We are never going to keep the first commandment. We are never going to love as God deserves to be loved with our whole being, without self-interest. Not because of what God does for us, but simply because God is beautiful. So we have to differentiate between an expectation and an aspiration, okay? This is really key. If we say, well, I mean, to keep this, we should be, like some of you perfectionists are like, okay, love God with whole being. Checklist, uh, first I will go to a different church. This is impossible, right? <laughs> 
if you are a person who's going to do a marathon, some of you have, you're sickos, um, but you might expect to finish the marathon, right? But you might aspire to win it. And you don't set out to lose the marathon, do you? You, might you know you're not going to win it, but you might aspire to do so. And in aspiring to do so, you know, you, you, your time gets that much faster. You're that much more encouraged to finish it, to meet the expectation, right? So, yes, we should aspire to love God with our whole being in the knowledge we're not going to succeed, that only Jesus is capable of doing that. The really cool thing, though, is you won't love God with your whole being, and you also will. I know, I contradicted myself. It was on purpose. There is a day coming when you won't be a fractured human being, when you won't love with half of your heart, when your faith won't be full of holes. You will experience what it is like to be completely self-forgetful in the presence of God, when God makes you whole and able to love totally. And so with every commandment, there is a you can't, and there's also you will. This is what God has committed to doing in your life, in my life, is to make us whole and capable of perfectly keeping the law. That won't happen in this lifetime, folks, just to be clear. The, the, the first commandment, that we are to have no other gods, that we are to instead be committed to God and aspire to love God as he deserves, this is a foundational relationship. There's a reason it's first. People have pointed out that the first four commandments govern our relationship with God and the next six with human beings. That's because God is the foundation. If we're asking the question, what does it mean to do a good job as a human, how to human well? It begins with God. You may have a plan that your foundational relationship is going to be a spouse or partner or something like that. Folks, another human being is just as broken and fractured in you. They do not make a good foundation for, for humaning well. It, it, it's two ticks and no dog. Right? You, have, you have to be in relationship with God first for the rest of those relationships to, to, to be informed by your relationship with God. Some of you guys are like, yeah, that didn't work. You're right. I tried to get you know, in a romantic relationship and make that person the foundation for my entire life. It totally didn't work, so now I'm just going to do that with my kids. <laughs> yeah. That. Hmm. I, I would save up for their psychiatric bills now, okay? If that's your plan, to get to suck life out of your kids and live like, make them the foundation of all your whole life and the basis of your humanity. Not going to work, folks. Only a living relationship with the one true God. And by the way, God has made us his. That's where this whole thing starts. So because God has made us his, we are to have no other gods remain committed, and love God as he deserves. There was once a, um, a factory worker named Carlo Soriano, Italian if you couldn't tell, and he, he, he uh, came off the bus in the town square one day coming home from work, and he saw on the side of the road, there were, in a ditch, was a dog, and the dog was injured, and it was nearly starved to death. 
And so moved with compassion for this dog, Carlo like picked up the dog, took it home, fed it, nursed it back to health. And, and after this dog was healthy, it started coming to that bus stop every single day at 4 p.m. Like clockwork, the dog would show up you know, at the bus stop and would just sit stock still. And people would get a kick out of this dog because it was ignoring everything, like wouldn't go after birds or squirrels. It would sit and it would sniff the air. And as the bus approached, you know how dogs do this, they, the dog would get excited that Carlo was coming off the bus, right? And he'd lose his mind and he'd go home with, with Carlo. Carlo, this was during the Second World War, the factory he worked in was hit by a bomb and he was killed. And that dog, who he named Fido, which is the Latin word for faithful, continued to be at that bus stop every day at 4 p.m., to meet the bus for 14 years until he died. What does it look like to respond to someone, to God making you his? Am I demeaning us by comparing us to the dog? I feel like I'm demeaning the dog. Because, because look, that dog's master was actually dead and he still kept on believing he was coming for 14 years. We're losing it. We're like, I don't know about this whole thing. If we're struggling through something for six weeks, we're like, why hasn't God delivered me? He hasn't shown up, right? Instead of living as if there is no God to care for us, we need to go deeper into this foundational truth that God has made us his. The way that we're going to love God more is to know God more, is to know more deeply this foundational truth that God has made us his and respond by having no other gods, remaining committed and loving God as he deserves. Please pray with me. God, our Father, I pray that the doubting heart, mine included, would be further convinced of your great love for us, that you died on a cross and rose again to make us yours. You forgave our sin. You receive us as family. I, I, I pray, God, that for everyone hearing your word today, whether online or in person, that we would be convicted of places where our commitment to you is either non-existent or actually our devotions going to someone else or something else. I pray that you would cure us of these idols that we latch on to, that we could be in living relationship with the God who has made us his. In Jesus' name, amen.